Hello. Welcome to episode 123 of Lunar Poetry Podcast. I'm David Turner. You alright? I was going to try and get this episode out before Christmas last year, but it felt like it would be too much of a rush, so I waited until now to do it properly, as it were. The reason I was busy is that I was putting the finishing touches to my first collection of poetry, which is out with Hester Glock Press. The book is a collection of prose poetry, visual art and essay-style writing, with the whole book being complemented by a series of recordings and experimental sounds and noises. Bleeps and bloops. It's out officially the 8th of February, but Hester Glock have agreed to make it available a little earlier, so if you'd like to grab yourself a copy for £10 plus packing and postage, then follow the link in the episode description. Hello, it's uh, Meta David interrupting the other David. I completely forgot to mention in this bit that um, if £10 plus packing and postage is beyond your reach financially, there is a PDF version of the book available for only £4. Um, So it's a one-off cost of £4. And you can read that PDF version from, I believe, any electronic device. Which is an option, right? Anyway, I've just spliced this recording in uh, because I just couldn't face recording another intro. Back to the intro. The recordings are available for free on my SoundCloud page. Link also in the episode description. I've got three UK book launches coming up if you'd like to come and say hello. The first is Saturday 8th of February at the Old Rose and Crown in Walthamstow. Next, it's Cardiff, Saturday 15th of February at a fantastic new event called Crash at the Flute and Tankard pub. And finally, a Bristol launch at Hours Gallery Space, and that's Saturday the 14th of March. Links to all of these events in the episode description, of course, of course. I'm going to be joined by some fantastic poets at these events, including today's guest, Vanessa Onrimezi, who will be appearing at the London event. I met up with Vanessa in Walthamstow, East London, where we both lived to discuss how she found herself to be pursuing a life of writing. You know, like all my other guests. I've always really enjoyed chatting to writers at the beginning of their careers as they tend to curtail my inclination toward fairly heavy doses of cynicism toward the industry, which Vanessa does brilliantly with her optimism. Bloody optimism. As always, this episode is fully transcribed. Click the link in the description or head over to lunarpoetrypodcast.com to download the transcript. You'll also find on the website a list of 80 poetry podcast produced in the UK and Ireland to fill your time between my now increasingly infrequent episodes. This list, of course, includes our companion podcast, A Poem A Week, produced by my wife, Lizzie Turner, and features some really brilliant poetry readings every weekend. That alone is up to its 81st episode. I'll be back at the end of the episode with some exciting funding news and with a few words for poet and my friend, Mishi Marath who sadly passed away before Christmas. It don't really feel right talking about it at the beginning. Anyway, here's Vanessa. Hello. 
Heartland. He wasn't sure where it began and ended. He wasn't sure if it was the beginning of the sickness he was at or somewhere close to the end, the dark night. He was doubting himself, free of securities he'd become loose, not sure whether he was man or woman, he, she, he, she wasn't sure if she was a flock of birds actually, each bird picked loose from the flock until she was all left apart. She climbed inside her sickness, the upper right heart chamber, atrium, wore the chamber like a new skin and she sweated all day and all night because of it. It was important to keep it moist, so that was something. Thank you very much, Vanessa. Um, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. How are you doing? Yeah, good, thank you. It's weird saying hello, isn't it, because we've already said hello. Yeah. And we've been chatting for a little while once yeah. the NFL was on. Um, <laughs> this seems like a good place to start. Mm. Why don't you tell the listeners how you got into writing? And Yeah, that, yeah that sounds good. Yeah, that seems like a good starting point. I guess I, I should start by saying that I studied biology at university, which is something we spoke about before. And Yeah, I didn't want to sort of make it too much of a leading question because it's difficult when you know people and you're trying to come on and sort of yeah. suddenly doing like, a professional so tell me. job. And I'm like, oh, what did I tell you? <laughs> Shall I yeah. make it new? But I think that's definitely a good place to start is that you don't necessarily have a background in writing. I suppose that's what I was yeah, getting at. Yeah, a literary yeah. background. And I think... I. I suppose it's good to start there because how I came to writing involves a kind of U-turn, I guess. It's not really a U-turn, but it's the best way to put it. I studied biology and really enjoyed doing that, actually. But I think during my degree, I already knew that I probably wouldn't be making a career out of it. And I think looking back, I probably could have studied other things as well, like a languages I really liked or history but biology seemed the more sensible of the three at the time and I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do with my life so I did that and I don't regret that and I did a master's or in a similar kind of subject but it kind of moved on from biology it was cognitive and evolutionary anthropology it was called it was basically a bit more of a philosophical take on what they call the hard problem which is consciousness, the mind, and that kind of thing, which meant that, I mean, it felt quite a natural step for me. I was definitely much more interested in the less um, tangible questions. And I think a lot of writers are really. So in some sense, I was already kind of set up to be a writer or an artist. I think deep down, that's what I really wanted to do. I think when you don't, like nobody in my family was or is an artist or writer. So I think if if it's not close to you or if you haven't seen it done, it's much more of a kind of wobbly career path as well. There's no set way to go about it necessarily if you haven't seen it done before. Yeah, you're sort of just making it up as you go, yeah. Along, aren't you? Yeah, definitely. And I think a big part of getting into writing was realising that that's what I needed to do, that there was stepping off the kind of more certain path. I considered medicine before I completely gave up any ideas around that. I considered becoming a doctor, did a bit of work experience in a hospital. 
it was my friend's dad that was actually the consultant who had kind of helped me to get this work experience. And I was in a clinic with him um, and he was seeing patients, I think, which had, who had kidney problems. And he left the room for a second and I was with this guy, this older man. He said to me, oh, so you want to be a doctor? That's great. And I was like, oh, yeah, you know, just kind of like being polite. And then he said, you know, because if you want to do something, you should just do it. And then he said, if you really want to do it, it's not hard. And I think at that point I was like, okay, I'm not doing medicine. (laughs) Not doing medicine. This is what I'm going to do. I think at that point I moved to France, actually. It's strange, isn't it, that for some people, what would seem by far the hardest option is in a lot of ways the easy option is yeah. at least a, or at least the path of least resistance it's yeah. still a difficult path to follow but had yeah. you gone into medicine you wouldn't have had necessarily questions on a, about how you get to your goal because yeah, that would yeah. all be laid out in front of you yeah, and you can see people around you straightforward and to jump in a little bit uh, quickly at that point was there any resistance around you did you feel tangibly about wanting to be a writer most of the resistance comes from yourself and and I think family can definitely be difficult for some people. It wasn't for me. My family have never... My parents have always been kind of quietly supportive. They've never been like, yeah, do this. or And they've never said, no, I don't think you should do that. They've always just quietly supported me, which I've always been grateful for because I've basically... They've left me to figure things out on my own without interfering very much. What you said there definitely rings true for a lot of the writers I've spoken to in the podcast in that this uh, imagined, I don't mean imagined as in a complete fantasy, but this imagined resistance against becoming a writer or pursuing a creative path is often to do with, like you were saying before, not knowing how to get there. And yeah. it seems imposs- an impossible dream almost to, to sort of reach that goal. Yeah, definitely. Especially when you you're very focused on it as a goal. I think that's can be a barrier when you're focused on having the published book, I suppose. Work from a position where you've not written yet written a sentence or you've written a couple of things and don't really know where to go with it or you're kind of alone just thinking I don't know what to do with my life. Um all of that can seem insurmountable but then you start to realize that you just have to do the next thing actually somebody I worked at a theater and the guy who ran the theater David Land did set we had a conversation and he said just do the next thing you know don't worry about you don't have to have your life planned out and once I started to trust that it, it does ring true you just do the next step I mean I'm still not published I still don't know so if I were waiting for that if that were my goal and that were the only thing um, that I could measure my success against then I'd constantly be on the back foot and the last 10 years would have been torture for me wouldn't it that's probably something we'll come on to a bit later but that's something that I'm asking myself constantly is how do you gauge your own success uh, professionally if there isn't necessarily a profession to exist within yeah yeah you know if you're not published and that is what a lot of people's views of what being a professional writer is then what are you doing yeah (laughs) basically (laughs) you know but that doesn't mean you're not doing anything but you have to reconcile within yourself 
definitely as to what your motivations are don't you yeah and what your view of success is I suppose I don't I don't have an you know an explicit internal yardstick for success I think what um, helped me was to realize that the goal was to write the goal isn't to be published my goal is to write and be a good writer basically to be good and focusing on that and that's because I really like writing and it comes quite naturally to me and even if I not to say that I never worry about what I'm what I'm going to do with myself or how I'm going to make a living I think all those things are really a really important part of it and going back to when we're talking about your own resistance and what barriers there are I think especially with the arts making a living is one of them it's I started this in my 20s so and I don't have any dependents I'm pretty much a free agent so to an extent I can worry less about that aspect of it but it is a very material as well as a psychological barrier to even starting so if we go, if we just go back quickly to something you said briefly there about your goal being to write and to write well how do you judge what you think is good so what mm. mechanisms do you use if you're not um at the stage yet where you're being published and getting feedback from editors through the process of making you know, putting out a book and then reviews and all the bullshit that comes after that yeah yeah <laughs> what are your current methods to to gauge whether something is good i workshop um nearly every week with a group of friends that i met when i did uh, a creative writing ma um so i think that is my most immediate gauge and i think through practice you get to know when something is obviously you think everything's rubbish on some level but I think I have a good idea of knowing when something is um, messy or where something needs work Um, and again there is an internal gauge if you're happy with something and it said what you needed to say then that's really when you can stop writing that thing I suppose. And do you do you have a constant set of parameters for quality when you're writing or do they fluctuate between piece uh, from piece to piece um that's a good question mm. i suppose i'm thinking more about what your process <clears throat> is as a writer and whether you shift style and yeah i think i until recently i did i think when i was learning oh i still am learning to write but uh when i was first starting my style would really vary depending on what i'd read recently and what i'd read that i really liked so i read like pinchin and all of a sudden i was writing like these really kind of long kind of tumbling sentences and i read dennis johnson and then um my style changed but i seem to have settled into something at least for the moment and yeah i suppose the parameters are the same for each and in a way I couldn't really articulate what they were I think you just know when the sentence I think rhythm is definitely very important for me I think I don't tend not to be satisfied if the rhythm of the sentence I feel is not working or the kind of the way the rhythm of the piece works together when read is that a rhythm 
in your spoken voice or more of an internal do you try and imagine how a reader might read it or? yeah I read it I read it out loud yeah. I read everything out loud generally usually when I start I read the whole thing out loud and yeah often I I will have I'll know the rhythm of the sentence before the words and usually I try and find the words I know what the gist of the sentence will be and I might try and find the words to fit that rhythm I think that's a bit of an obsession so I guess that that is a constant parameter yeah yeah we drifted very nicely away from my my original sort of banal question but you touched upon uh, the creative writing course you Mm -hmm. took so maybe if we jump back to how you got into writing so we got as far as um, you deciding not to follow and study medicine yeah that's it yeah Uh, so between there and the creative writing course what what happened to get to that point, I suppose? Um, what happened? I actually, I was working at the time at a theatre. Somebody started in my team who was doing the creative writing course at Birkbeck, basically. This was about five years ago now, four years ago. And I had been writing a bit, like I'd written a short story at that point, I think, and some poetry. And she was really raving about it. I went to a party and met um, one of the tutors on the course and chatted with her a bit and we ended up going for coffee and that's kind of in a backwards way how I ended up applying. I sent her some, I sent her the story after that. She basically said, yeah, you know, if you were to apply, you'd probably have a place. So that's how it happened. I didn't really think, give it too much thought. I didn't consider applying anywhere else either. I was just like, yeah, this sounds all right. So... And what was the focus of the course? Was it just general creative writing or did it lean towards poetry or prose? Or? Um, it was really, uh, so it was workshop based. So you workshop every week and it was based around the short story, at least for the first year. I think there were about 30 people in the year, say around 10 people in each workshop. And I think three people would go every week, two or three people. Um, so that you'd send the story on the Sunday before, on the Wednesday you'd show up and everyone would, you know, rip it to pieces (laughs) really nicely. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry? How was that the first time? Um, Do you remember? I I remember being really nervous. I think, uh, as everyone does, you're like, you suddenly have a a weird kind of view on your piece. It makes you look at it differently when you know it's being read, I think. I think when it's just you, um, I don't know, when you know, as soon as you email it away and you know it's being read by a couple of people, you start to, I don't know, reconsider it, reconsider what the hell you're doing. Yeah, how Um, much did it affect your writing process, knowing that everything was going to be read? I don't know, really. Not Maybe not enough. I still left it to the last minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and generally, I think the way I dealt with it was just, I would send it when I was just a bit fed up, like leave it to the last minute and then write all week and weekend until I was fed up and then send it off. And I think in a way it was a defense because it I was so tired of it that I was happy to see it go rather than terrified to know what people thought of it. So that was the way I dealt with it. And actually, people in the workshops, people were always very kind and supportive. It wasn't, for me at least, it wasn't a bad experience at all. It was a very good one, I think. It's really interesting that you talk about the defensive aspect of 
choosing to deal with deadlines in that way Mm -hmm. it was definitely something that i've been i haven't done a writing course like that but i've been part of writing groups and uh, i didn't start sharing any work until i was in my early to mid 30s and it's hard at that point when you're a proper well supposedly proper proper grown-up yeah (laughs) to suddenly start bearing yourself in front of people and not get really defensive when people comment on your work so i was i did the same thing i would just sort of bash stuff out yeah, and yeah. send it and go, well, if they don't like it, it's because it was rushed. It's, yeah, exactly. You know, I and it, and without it. facing up to the... Because that's the mm-hmm. thing, it's not... I have. I know a lot of writers that swear by not ever joining any writing groups and you don't need peer feedback and all that, and that's their view. Mm-hmm. But I'm a strong believer that if you're going to go through the anxiety of doing it, you should do it properly and not, yeah, yeah. And not just sort of half half uh, Caught between saying half-heartedly and half-arsedly then... But yeah. either one, mm-hmm. just send stuff off yeah. and have just an easy out where you say, well, that wasn't really a considered piece. So if they don't like it, it's, you know, it's to be expected. Yeah. Did you have to fight against that? To, do you feel to get the most out of the course or did it just continue? Until, <laughs> until oh, the what, fight against my yeah, defensive yeah. urges? Um, no, I think I did sort myself out say I did sort myself out eventually and it really just depended on what else was going on in my life it was at Birkbeck so it was in the evenings so everyone worked so I think everyone was sort of on a similar page not everyone could always you couldn't always give all your time to it and I yeah and I think I took much more seriously reading other people's work I was much more I gave much more time and attention and care to that and actually I think after the first few workshops some of the feedback was really good and helpful and I think when you realize how it can help you want to send in a a story you've actually worked on because you want to you don't want the things they're picking up to be merely that you haven't spent enough time on it that's not how you're going to be a better writer. So I think I quickly realised, actually, if I want to get the most out of the workshop, I should spend time on it so they can pick holes in, well, actually, I I need to learn, basically. Mm. Similarly, I think the reasons I enjoyed any of the writing groups I've been part of is because it made me read in a way that, because I was reading with a view to give some feedback Mm -hmm. about the work, so I was much more considered about the way I was that's the first time I'd ever read in that way. Yeah, yeah, This same for me. Yeah, the first. having not studied academically either, I had, yeah, I've never I had to see. read with a view to sort of remembering Feedback anything necessarily. Critique yeah, critiquing like that, anything. Yeah. And I actually found that when we lived in Bristol for a short time, my wife and I, Lizzie, started a writing group there. And I very rarely shared any work at the group, but I kept going to run the group just to read people's work because it informed a lot as to how I would interview people on the podcast because mm-hmm, it just okay. trains your mind to sort of take things in a bit faster. This may be something that a lot of people who have studied take for granted because they may have learned that at an early age, but I never needed to. Yeah. So it was, it was quite a new skill for me to have to pick up. Yeah, that's, um, that's interesting. I think also, I suppose, biology wasn't, it wasn't really a subject where, I did read a lot, but I do think, as you say, you read in a different way when you're critiquing someone's work, especially if it's creative work. So I think there are certain parts of it 
like um, being in the workshop scenario, giving feedback, I think speaking in front of people and things like that is something that if you've done a degree, you will have done before. And for a lot of people, that's more than half the battle almost. Like, I don't think I really spoke. Um, and I'm not that um, worried about speaking in front of groups generally, but I did, it seems like such a distant memory now, but I do remember feeling a bit out of my depth. I hadn't really read that much, you know, there are lots of people who were really, really well read. They're all different ages as well. So some people just had more life to yes. read books in. <laughs> but um, my academic experience had been really scientific and it is just a different way of um, thinking about things. And now I realise, hearing you say that, actually I realise that I did really have to learn how to participate in a workshop setting and learn how to critique things. I think now when I read something and I say, um, or I read something and I don't know if there's a comma out of place or I think, oh, actually this might have done better if they'd put that here or something like that. I forget or take for granted that's something I really had to learn. And I guess speaking about barriers into writing, that could be one, I suppose, that could put a lot of people off doing a creative writing course definitely but i think it it goes for all, all skills in life you know in the uh, the furniture workshop that i'm a maker in i have to keep reminding a lot of the senior makers to not be too hard on some of the younger people yeah. because it's very easy to forget how you don't know anything necessarily yeah, yeah. and people mm. people need to be allowed a space which is a lot of these workshops i've actually never been part of a workshop where it's ever been felt that people can't make mistakes mm -hmm. but you don't know that until you're in there yeah, yeah and I think this is probably one of the barriers that we're talking about isn't it it's just the unknown it's like you're saying perhaps had you had a writer to talk to in your early like late teens early 20s mm -hmm. when you were first thinking about going what down that path do? yeah you could have at least sounded someone out about it and I had exactly the same thing I mean I'm this is not about me. We won't go down that route. Yeah. But, um, no, but yeah, I think it's important it's... to remember that, old, that, I mean, neither of us are particularly old, but I find, um, especially when you get familiar with a skill, that it's easy to forget what it was like not knowing anything about that. Completely, yeah. <laughs> and not being able to talk about it, especially. Yeah, definitely. And it's good to refresh yourself, I suppose. I mean, it's good to have conversations like this. It's also good to try and keep doing learning new things or keep doing things which make you realize that um you know you're a lay person in many kind of in many respects many specialisms i mean when i started my newest jobs i was sitting in a lot of production meetings people talking about theater um you know like um theater production and there are so many words thrown around where i'd be like what what is that i mean you might know some because it's basically construction language I guess but people would just talk and I'd be like okay how but how do I spell that how and it's a <laughs> you learn it's an abbreviation of something yes, and yeah. and I think at that time I did realize that although I have no idea what's going on I'm quite comfortable with that now again it, like a lot of these resistances are inner resistance it's like um it's perfectly normal not to know anything about something that's new but perhaps a previous version of me might have beat myself up about that or might have just avoided that situation altogether 
similarly when I have to tell some of the senior makers in the workshop to not be too hard on the younger makers you have to conversely remind the younger makers to not feel bad about not knowing certain things because mm. even then within the field that you feel like you you're almost an expert in there are always things that you don't know there are methods of furniture making I know nothing about because I've either just not been trained to to use them mm. or they're just predate my training and they're not really used anymore and then you can go to anyone in the workshop and they'll know far more about one aspect than you yeah maybe that's just a lesson for life yeah i was gonna say that's like a, that's everything isn't yeah, it yeah. it is everything mm. it's like a learning to when i lived in france there wasn't um like you just had to not know i don't i couldn't speak french so there was a case of just having to ask a question what is that thing in french you having to ask people or say to people i don't understand can you repeat that kind of learning losing your pride i guess or it, no it, it's humility. um it, it's funny with the amount of parallels having moved to norway and learned norwegian yeah. as an adult predates me uh focusing properly on writing and i've been far less embarrassed about anything in my life now that I've gone through the process of learning a second language as an adult and, yeah, and yeah, yeah. Um, seemingly in my own head humiliating myself in public so many yeah, times yeah. Know, not knowing what a bread roll is called or yeah. or not being able to pronounce my R's at all yeah, and yeah. they're really important in Norwegian you know okay. and people just not knowing what I'm talking about because I've got a lazy London mouth yeah yeah. I, yeah I have the same thing I had a stopover in Paris yesterday or whenever I um flew back and I asked for and supposedly I can speak French but I went to a coffee place and I asked for like a coffee with uh soy milk and she was just like huh and I was like oh god no what <laughs> I've forgotten already it is a real kind of baptism of fire I think as you'll know and it's a good lesson I think it teaches you to laugh at yourself that's a very good point. Maybe we can get on to laughing at ourselves specifically as writers afterwards because mm -hmm. um, not taking what I'm doing too seriously is uh, a big thing for me at the moment. But it might be a good time for a second reading. Yes. Accusations, accusations. The witch was standing on the front steps of her house, leaning forward as if forehead on a pike, her husband died, I've been told. Would it explain the wailing always seeming to be coming from there? Always seeming to my ears like it could be the wind, human or no difference? I've caught sight of her on other days, swaying barely upright, queuing at the post office, bank, supermarket, bar, pub, zebra crossing, bones old feather crisp and she's light, as if held up by air, particles. Particles. Thank you very much. I want to return to one thing that we were talking about, and that was um, when we when we were discussing um, the ways in which we read, mm -hmm. and talked about the types of books you were reading when you were studying biology, and it struck me. Suddenly, because I don't think I've necessarily... I've I have spoken to people with scientific backgrounds, if you put it like that, but not specifically about 
I don't like to make too much of a put too much of a divide between any subjects because yeah. they don't because they don't exist. They don't need to no, be, because yeah. there are ways of thinking that are similar. But it suddenly struck me that there's possibly a very different way of reading in that um, I know from speaking to friends that have studied sciences that fundamental to all of it is to question what you're reading yeah in yeah. order to question the process whereas it's but you don't necessarily text you don't you wouldn't necessarily question the text in itself it's more the process to get to that point yeah whereas with creative writing you're very much picking apart the text that you see within it but whether you believe the text or not the truth is irrelevant or the fact that it isn't true is probably um, the fact violent. that it's fiction. Yes, yeah. yeah. It's exactly the word I was <laughs> <laughs> I suddenly couldn't, I couldn't think what the opposite of non-fiction was. Yeah. <laughs> You're quite right. That's fiction. it, we could go on, you know, we could talk that into the ground. Yeah, yeah. Know. But I was um, wondering whether you've ever thought about the influence that that, question, that questioning of process uh, has had any influence over your writing. Um, so the biological scientific background I suppose that's that part of your academic study yeah I think actually I always in some ways I always struggled with that the scientific kind of scientific reading I mean I like mostly what I read when I was um, studying were papers so they'd be divided up for you you know method um, I can't remember now list of equipment and all that kind of stuff and there is a a very particular writing style which I could never seem to get I don't know I'd write essays and my friend would write essays and they'd say oh your writing style's really good and I would not know what could I to this day I did not know what they were talking about so I think in a way always I was I leant towards the more kind of literary stuff I think um and I think now you see scientists who who write popular books who need to be more literary I suppose but the really kind of hardcore biological stuff yeah I suppose you're reading you're questioning but I think actually I'd probably argue that that mode of thought has kind of invaded everything else I think scientism or intellectualism has invaded literature and uh, ways of looking at art which actually aren't really so appropriate for it do you have any examples um i suppose I, I one thing i found when i was workshopping was uh or actually when i talk about someone's read something i've written often the first thing people say will, will be like oh I, I know nothing about poetry or i don't know anything about literature and that basically means that perhaps they feel like they haven't understood what you're saying um, they haven't got the meaning. I think, like, I don't get it kind of thing. Well, I feel that, that that's not the point, I think. If you were to get it if, it, if you're reading something and it's speaking to you and you understand every sentence, then work hasn't really done its job. Like, a, like um, I should be able to read a scientific paper and understand what the scientists thinks they have discovered with this that should be plain or you read an essay and should understand their arguments but I don't think I should understand immediately what a writer or a poet is talking about simply by 
reading the text, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. It's something I've struggled with since uh, returning to writing about six years ago now, is this need that a lot of people have for wanting to understand what it is. It seems to be accepted that you can listen to a song and you don't necessarily have to understand every single line. Mm-hmm. It can be emotive and it can draw something out out of you, even if you don't remember 75% of the lyrics. You know, yeah. It can still be affecting. But it just seems to be this huge expectation that you should understand, uh, the reader should understand everything that the writer is trying to say. Yeah. And I don't understand why that would be everyone's um, aim as a writer. I know that some people will, will aim for that. Yeah. Um, yeah, the question is usually what what is it about, isn't it? Like, or when um, a piece of writing is reviewed or critiqued, maybe that often the reviewer will go for the I don't know. They'll pick out some themes and say, "Oh, this relates to capitalism," or "This is about you know, this is a social novel or whatever it is." As soon as you've done that, that's the meaning that people take away so there are are certain writers and people get really frustrated I think with you not giving giving it up like not saying oh actually well this is about you know her dead father or something like that because you say well no if I knew exactly what it was about I wouldn't have written it or I would have written one sentence if I could have told you in one sentence what something's about then there's not really any point is it is there sorry so yeah, I think actually writing in a sense has taught me how to read or taught me to be a better reader and I try I still have sometimes have a tendency I I think oh this reminds me of this or you do have the tendency to want to generalize or reduce something down into the thin thread you can kind of put into words or the thing thread you can glean from it but actually I think that the best way to read something even sometimes something scientific is to read at least the first time not trying to understand everything you just read it really plainly and that tends to be the best way to absorb I think absorb work especially poetry actually I mean this is something I've talked about a lot on the podcast and don't necessarily need to be something to go into now but a lot of people have cited the way that poetry is taught at schools as the reason that this there's this obsession about understanding things because that's yeah, the way it's taught yeah. is to, to unlock this riddle yeah, yeah and i don't yeah. know I, things may have changed it's been a long time since i was at school but it may it may be now that some uh, parts of the curriculum are allowing students to actually just enjoy, read stuff and enjoy it yeah. and just take away. But it it seems as though there is still an emphasis on, even if you're allowed your own unique individual take on the poem, mm-hmm. there still has to be a take. Yeah, I and mean, that's why I hated English literature yeah. at school. Like, I just could not Me hack too. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I remember. I remember that. And I remember even now, I just, I, I just don't think I have a incredibly analytical mind and I think when I'm forced to analyze things like that I just can't I just don't can't seem to find the energy for it where some people really can but I, but I think also the 
obviously to be a good critic you need that but I think um, the best critiques don't look for the thing that they already know if that makes sense mm. you're looking to see what the writer is saying or what the writer's evoking rather than trying to draw out themes that confirm your own your own viewpoint or your own understanding of what literature should be saying yeah what do you feel like would be the ideal piece of feedback from a reader with your obviously this would probably change from piece to piece but just as a general thing I'm just, I suppose there would be a follow up question to that as to what you're aiming for in terms of a connection with readers I guess any good feedback is nice but I suppose you want I you, you want someone to either be disturbed by something you've written or um, I think a feeling is definitely better than maybe someone saying oh this um, I I totally get what you're saying. This is about, I don't know, Freudian psychology or whatever. Um, but definitely you want someone to feel something. I, th I think the times where I've read things and it's impacted me the most. I remember when I first read The Aleph by Borges and I was just kind of blown away. I guess there's only... I've, no other way I could put it. It's definitely a bodily thing when you've, and I couldn't at that point of, you know, summarize the piece for you. I couldn't have told you what it's about or even remembered a lot of it immediately after, but I definitely felt something very strongly. It felt like a truth that has been kind of transmitted to you, but through your skin rather than um, through your, with your intellect. I tend to find the more I like something, the the less I have to say about it. Yeah, like I, yeah. I can't verbalise why I, I I just adore Lydia Davis. Yeah. And I can't ever tell anyone what it is particularly. And I've thought about it f for quite a few years now because of having attended these critiquing sessions and mm -hmm. stuff. I've tried to do it a little bit as a thought um, exercise. Uh, to try and put into words why I like certain things because I have also I've written a few reviews in the past about mainly live events and I've I tend to find well if I could write 800 to 1000 words about something I probably haven't enjoyed it yeah <laughs> I'm trying to like sort of wrench out of myself what these what certain books mean to me and uh, I can't I, I can't I suppose it it's strange that i have been attracted to writing poetry because that typically stereotypically would be mainly people that are trying to express these kinds of thoughts and feelings through words but yeah. then it's probably in a deliberately uh difficult way <laughs> it would yeah. never make a review i don't know yeah and also i think i think we maybe it's poetry seems to be more accepted that you don't know what it's immediately about I think because uh short stories and novels and narrative it is about it's always about something it has to be about something I suppose unless you're getting very experimental I find that if I think usually the best stuff I read or um the stuff that's really impacted me yeah like you if someone were to ask me what's it about I'd have to be like well you know it's about this man and he um, I like thinking about um, Nabokov's uh, Pnin, 
um, I think he wrote initially as a short story and it's in The New Yorker. And I listened to that on the podcast. And if you ask me what it's about, I'd say, well, it's basically about a guy who loses his suitcase and then gets it back and goes to give a lecture. But obviously that's not what it's about. It's not like there's that's Such there's a good lots. point is there, there is what happens and there is meaning. Yeah. And they're, yeah. they're often um, disconnected. I mean, some writers will, the whole, the whole meaning is that stuff just happens but that's a, a deliberate style isn't it yeah and you are right it's a very good point to make that stuff is either narrative seemingly or experimental anything yeah, that deviates yeah. from that is considered i mean I, i'm talking very much like english language and yeah. british publishing standpoint at the moment um but yeah that you're either what you're either in or you're out yeah you? yeah but it does seem that you're happy to stand outside of that that sort of standard narrative-driven... Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, um, again, it depends what... I think, like, what uh, when you read... Reading writers you admire or finding new writers that are doing things you've never done or never read before makes you a bit braver, I suppose. And a lot of the stories, short stories I write are narrative, more or less. They, they don't... Um, they or they go somewhere at least, or they start with a person. They are still stories, I suppose. But then I've never, haven't really thought too much about whether they're experimental. I've been called experimental, but I don't really think too much about what that means. I guess I just want to get the story done, which is, you know, enough. <laughs> That's enough, just getting it done. And then you leave the labels to someone else, don't you? So Yeah, in my very narrow experience, the the people that call writers experimental have a very narrow view of what experimental means. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. quite amazing the amount of poets that I see at events introduced as being experimental. And it pretty much solely comes down to them using odd line breaks in their poems. Yeah, and yeah. there's yeah. very little experimental in nature about the writing, you know, because... There's nothing it, formally... Yeah, and if you truly go down that daring. route, then... You know, you, you've got. To, I think if if someone that considered themselves to be an experiment experimental writer, for them to go to the lengths of calling someone else an experimental writer, you'd have to be doing something pretty out there. I think, yeah, <laughs> to, to sort yeah. of impress someone in that club. Yeah, yeah. Because it's yeah. similarly, it's quite. I, I would say the vast majority of writers don't really care where they are as long as they get to keep writing. It's like you were saying at the yeah. beginning. Your your motivation is just to write and to write as well as you can and that has to meet certain criteria that you lay out yeah there is a narrow band of people that uh have a very defined idea what it is to be a writer and and, and it, they can be quite defensive about the club that they're in yeah d definitely and i suppose a lot of this i'm just discovering like the label experimental was like at least a year ago or two years ago fairly new to me I just knew what I liked and what I didn't like and I like a lot of stuff which could be deemed very traditional and other things that could be deemed really out there but it's um again what we were just saying meaning is really the key I think whatever it is it seems that as you say, you want that feeling where it's kind of got in through your skin. You don't want the feeling that somebody's telling you how to feel about 
this sentence they've just written or you don't want to feel like your emotions are being manipulated by um, a writer trying to, I guess, control how you read them. You just want... I don't know, you want the trans the transcendent thing, don't you? You want transcendence from it. I think mm. that that nice is the goal. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember whether it is a quote that I've read somewhere or heard somewhere or whether someone said it on the podcast because my memory doesn't work that way. But um <laughs> it's just basically there's a difference between leading people and pushing them. Yeah. And it seems that, you know, that's sort of just leading people, you know, and I'd like to write more short stories. I've that's probably going to be my focus more for the next couple of years. But cool. sort of similarly to what you're saying there, if I probably am, most a lot of people would think I write more experimentally. And whilst I do mainly reject sort of formal narrative mm-hmm. and stuff, I would agree with you definitely that if it if it fits with the the meaning that I'm hoping to drive through or. Uh, not drive. I just said I wasn't going to drive. I was leading, <laughs> not pushing. But yeah, yeah, share with yeah. the reader. Yeah. Um, if that comes across best with quite a standardised narrative form, then I'd be happy to use that. You know, there's one thing that I hate about um, a lot of artistic movements that I suddenly find it always really disheartens me when they have a manifesto because it seems to just be one long list of things that people are rejecting. Oh yeah. And what, I, like so rejecting narrative or. Yeah, I think, I mean, there are definitely writing movements where it's just a long list of things that they're rejecting. Okay. And similarly with, um, you know, a lot of artistic movements, it's a deliberate act to reject everything that's come before, to invent something new. Yeah. As though there could be a new way of feeling for a human being. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because it's all, all really the same thing. I think... I mean, I think if you write or if you make any kind of art, you do think about this. And I think the drive towards experimentation, whatever that may mean today or what what it has meant, you know, the avant-garde, modernism, is really the drive towards meaning. I think, I, you know, I don't deliberately write the way I do. It, it wasn't a choice or a conscious choice. It was more of an evolution of style because it's you want to get there, you know. You want the you want to touch reality, I suppose. And re- by reality, I mean the reality that you feel exists that you that you can't see. There's no sense that can give you um, access to it, but you glimpse it, and then you're trying to convey it and your style evolves as the most effective way of doing that. So if I add gaps to the work or if I write write in a very... I think the reason I started... Well, I have always written quite surreal work and the reason for that was because it felt more real. For some reason, it felt like it gave me more access to what felt real, to write things which were a bit unusual, I suppose. And I think that should be your only driver. I think a manifesto is nice. I guess it keeps people together. I don't know. It's like nice to... I would say it keeps people out. Yeah, it keeps people out, keeps some people in, doesn't it? 
that that's really the only aim and I think whatever kind of umbrella that comes under is fine some people I think um, definitely realism or very traditional writing has it's not I don't think it's as effective anymore having said that though I think of like uh, writers I really like like um, Dennis Johnson say who you'd probably say is writes realism but he writes in such a way which makes it fresh you know and that's really what you want is freshness you want um francis bacon the painter said at least this there's a quote attributed to him that said he said uh the purpose of art is to deepen the mystery and i think that's a good way of putting it in a way like you want to create a vacuum where somebody is drawn into it like when you're talking about leading and driving I suppose that's the way I see it is that you want to um, and which is why I kind of uh, don't like the question what's it about because as soon as you've given someone a meaning that's what they take away but you really want them to be kind of dumbfounded and and that and in that respect you create a space for them to really go into the mystery of it I suppose it's a really nice really? Uh, idea to finish on, I think, giving someone, giving a reader a space to exist in your work. Yeah. And allowing them to do whatever they mm. want in there. As long as they feel the, have the confidence to do that. Yeah, yeah, which <laughs> I mean, is, how, I guess, how, the trouble, isn't how it? We, yeah. uh, how we uh, make uh, poetry and a lot of other forms of prose more accessible yeah. and more welcoming is a completely different conversation. But it's yeah, nice, yeah. at least writers are already making the effort to do that with their writing. Yeah, definitely. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. We're at the end. Yeah, but we will um, take a third and final reading, please. Okay. Okay, so this is um, a story at the heart of things. I'm reading an excerpt of it. Um, And this story won the Write Review Short Story Prize this year uh, in 2019. It's called At the Heart of Things. At the heart of things, there is no meaning. Hanging a picture on the wall, I give... A little too much force to my thumb, skin breaks under pressure, an orb of blood. Red, red to dark red, to dry red, to skin, to iron, to rust, to heat, to sweat, to yesterdays as we move. We move. Tuesday, going into the city with the rest of them, sliding down the grease pole of means become ends, let me tell you. I slipped and travelled against a sharp grain of escalator, one flight of metal before I hit flat floor and crack. To the back of my head I cried like a child, oh I, oh I, said me, am in pain. I was at work by the afternoon, at home by early evening, feeling burning scratches on the backs of my legs and the bruised curve of my head, my mind curved bruised. In bed, The sheet scraped and tugged me sore anyway I tried to lie. I, face down, looking for a cool place, stretched out an arm and all that was solid dematerialised. I, and nothing slipped into water. Water as pressure. I felt the water as pressure. I'd always thought of pressure as a pushing down. Oh, 
It was every drop of water for miles working into me. There was nothing to my fingers, no weight, no force on the pads of my feet, no cold draught wafting past the hairs of my skin, no sound, no sight. I couldn't set my watch to nothing. I waited. I couldn't scream. Unaware of mouthful lungs to do so, not breathing, not dead, not alive, no fear, not yet. Eyes wide open into dark and no sense, unsayable. Thank you very much, Vanessa. Thank and you. if anyone listening wants to read the full uh, short story, which is fantastic, I will link in the episode description to the White Review website and you can go and read it there. It's been so great to hear you read today because I can really get a sense of the rhythm in each of the pieces right, that thanks. you were talking about earlier. That's good. Um, thank you so That's much good. for coming on. I really loved chatting. Thanks it's for really having good. me. Yeah, yeah, it's been really nice. Um, You stuck around. Grab yourself some vegan Percy pigs as a treat. As I said in the conversation, I'll link to Vanessa's prize-winning short story at the White Review and also to her Twitter page. Um, Anything else that I think might be of interest. The exciting funding news I mentioned at the beginning is that Arts Council England have agreed to fund a project which will see the remainder of the series transcribed and for me to complete the archiving of the series at the British Library. This means that when I finally do hang up my podcasting headphones and the millions of microphones that I've got, the entire series and the accompanying transcripts will remain available on the British Library website and hopefully never disappear like so many other audio projects. Just think how many poets' voices are lost in the mini-disc graveyards of the 1990s. The project will run from February to July, so it's all pretty imminent. For updates about this series and our A Poem A Week series, head over to LunarPoetryPodcast.com, Lunar Poetry Podcast on Facebook and at Silent underscore Tongue on Twitter. And to finish, my friend Mishi Marath. When I first started attending poetry open mic events back in 2014, I naively assumed I wouldn't hear any voices like mine or those that I grew up around. Um... Not only did Mishy sound familiar, he he was one of those people. He was a fair bit older than me, but was from the same part of London as my family. Um, while his first love was non-league football club Dulwich Hamlet, he always talked passionately about poetry and the positive effect that writing and public speaking in the form of poetry readings had on his life. Even if, in his words, poetry did attract too many wankers, Though Mishy truly felt there were too many wankers everywhere. The National Poetry Library on the South Bank in London and the open mic night Poetry Unplugged were almost as important to him as the Dulwich Hamlet terraces at Champion Hill. And for anyone that knows how important that club is to him, knows that this is the highest possible praise. Making this podcast has brought with it a constant stream of nagging doubts, most notably what the fuck am I doing? though preserving the voice of a friend seems motivation enough. 
I always knew that eventually a guest of the series would no longer be with us and the episode may be one of the few records left of their voice. I just hadn't anticipated it might be someone who I'd missed so much. I sat down with Mishy back in June 2015 for episode 41 in the clubhouse at Champion Hill and we'll finish with a couple of poems that followed on from us discussing just what poetry had given to Mishy. They're also a pretty good insight into how Mishy viewed his own mortality. I'll apologise in advance for the sound quality. I didn't know what the fuck I was doing back then. So until episode 124, sometime in the spring, be good to yourself. Here's Mishy Dulwich Hamlet Marath. To give that speech or whatever, if I hadn't got the experience of um, reading at Poetry Nights. So it's not just about poetry, it's about improving your life and, you know, making you more confident. And finding a way to communicate, isn't it? You know, sort of. I mean, yeah, that, yeah. people would say I'll do that anyway. Yeah. But what I portray publicly is maybe not what I feel yeah. inside. Yeah. And that's, that's another thing about poetry, is that um, not only do I enjoy doing it, but it's also, for lack of a better word, it can be very therapeutic. And if it clears my head a bit, for whatever reason, I'm not going to give incidents or whatever, yeah. it doesn't matter, because there's so many different ones. But if I'm feeling down and I write a poetry, I feel better, mm. you know, so. Um, so on that note, maybe we could take a, is it just one more poem to finish? I've just got two small ones at the end. Two small ones, that's it. Is, is that a subtle I'm taking too much time. No, 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 go on. Um, said about feeling down and all this, so I'm going to finish with two lovely morbid ones. Um, this one I wrote after there was um, a phoning on LBC about support from some bishops on assisted dying. And um, this is called When the Time is Right. As time creaks on, I start to fear what will happen when the end is near. There's nothing wrong with me yet. No need to panic. I'm not going crazy from my normal to manic. But when I die, I want it to be quick. Scared of suffering, terminally sick. If that ever happens, I don't want to linger. Time to go with the flick of a finger. Is it too much to ask to turn up a switch? A painless death without a hitch. I don't want to suffer right to the end. Give me the option of a man's best friend. One last world, one last farewell, a time to say goodbye. Small prick of the needle, a bit of a cry. At the moment you can only do this if you're comfortable or rich. Flying off to Switzerland when pain's too much of a bitch. Poor people like me have only the nearest bridge. If you want to die with dignity, then sleep in a mortuary fridge. You preach God's will, saying your prayer. Watching me dosed up with morphine as if you really care. Pumping my body with a multitude of drugs. Prolonging my suffering from white-coated thugs. You warn me of Harold Shipman stalking the ward. Or just let me take my chances and die of my own accord. And this last one was one... Uh, it's quite a topical one, I suppose. Um, it's about when Charles Kennedy died a few weeks ago. And it's called Another One Bites the Dust. And it's about people's reaction to death and how people were so nice to him. So this one's called Another One Bites the Dust. I hope when I drop dead, you're honest about who I am. I'll be the one who's brown bread so you won't be able to give a damn. If you're the one who never liked me, don't pretend that you did. Just say it like it really was when they nailed down my coffin lid. I don't want a ton of plaudits like for that Charles Kennedy chap. If you must say it how it was, none of that make out you respect me crap. Because if you're someone who I don't like, I'm not going to pretend to cry. And truth, I will be smiling when it's your turn to die. 
It's not that I didn't like Kennedy, but bottom line was he's one of them. Even though he seemed a decent bloke, at heart he was still a Lib Dem. Yes, he died far too young and had a drink problem like me, but it's not as if I'm celebrating, more indifferent than full of glee. He was a politician from the telly. I didn't share his views. In fact, the only thing I'm sorry about was that it was him and not Simon Hughes. <laughs> Cheers, Mishy. Um, so, 